that this is, you know, people say, God, why did you write a book about failure? Actually, what I want people to understand is this is a book about success. And in an uncertain world, that is the one we live in, failure plays an absolutely vital role in success. Hey, everybody, I'm Lori Brudeman, and this is Punk Rock HR. In each episode, we take a realistic but slightly cynical approach to fix and work, bringing you raw and honest conversations with disruptors, innovators, and even random working people like you and me with one goal, to reshape the workplace as you know it. But sometimes we take a break from all that and talk about real life, like relationships and well-being and kids and animals. And along the way, we drop a few F-bombs too. Whether you're an HR professional trying to do the right thing, a leader looking to connect with their people, or just fascinated by workplace dynamics, this is your destination to fix work once and for all. On this episode, I'm lucky enough to chat with Dr. Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. This is her second time on the show, and we're discussing her new book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. If you've ever wondered how you could fail without it killing you or even fail into a new job, well, this episode is for you. So sit back and enjoy this chat with Amy Edmondson. Hey, Amy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased you're here. And listen, um, before we get started, like talking about all your good stuff, last time you were here and we were talking about psychological safety, but now I have to say you're like leadership famous, you're business famous in a new way, you know, you're, uh, you're the new it girl, right? So how does that feel to have everybody talking about you and your work and beyond psychological safety talking about failure? Well, I might have to push back a little bit about new it girl, but I have to say it's been enormously gratifying. I mean, astounding in a way to, to see the, the reception for, for this new book, right? Kind of wrong. And I think people's ability to see the links to psychological safety and to really understand that in today's world, like it or not, we have to take risks and not all of them will work out as we had dearly hoped. And that's got to be, it. we've got to be able to do that and help people do that in our companies without them experiencing punishment or pain as a result. Mm. I'm glad you started there. And I don't mean to make light of your enduring career and your amazing success. I mean, you are really rooted as someone who is known for being a thinker in the world of work, and you've been doing it for a long time. I just like how how you truly are like buzzing right now. It's amazing. But maybe we could take a step no, back. No, I like it too. Yeah, of course you do. Of course. It's <laughs> yeah. fun, right? I mean. Yeah, it sure is. I just want to talk a little bit just for a second about psychological safety in case people are not aware of that term. And I don't know how they wouldn't be, but can you tell us about that concept and maybe how it relates to failure? Sure. Well, I think it, it's very likely. I mean, at least it, not very likely. I think it is possible that people cannot yet be familiar with that term. And it's even more likely that people may be familiar with it, but have the wrong idea about it. So I am happy to talk about it. So psychological safety is defined as a belief that you can take interpersonal risks without fear of humiliation, rejection, bad consequences. And this is particularly relevant at work. It's, it's for me, my research, my interests are about the workplace. And 
it is natural for people to hold back. Right? It's it's natural to wait and see. It, you know, it's, it's it's natural to not want to take interpersonal risks. And on the one hand, psychologically, oh, that's fine. But on the other hand, organizationally and from a performance perspective, it's very problematic. When people don't feel able to take interpersonal risks, their companies are subject to much worse risks. You know, the risk of obsolescence or the, you know, the risk of missing problems that that could have been reported and fixed earlier. And so it's, you know, it's a real source. It's a, it's a really important input to performance. Why I say there's many misconceptions out there is that over the years since this has become relatively widely spoken about, I keep hearing people saying things like, well, it's about being nice, or it's about making sure everybody feels comfortable all the time or able to bring their full self to work. I'm not for or against that, but that's not what it is. In fact, I would go so far as to say that psychological safety really describes a state of understanding that it's okay to be uncomfortable because learning is uncomfortable. And oftentimes doing the things we need to do to be really excellent are uncomfortable. Oh, I like that a whole lot. And I like that you use the word excellence because I think that's ultimately what we're going for. You know, we, most of us don't show up to work to be mediocre. We don't do the things we do to fail. And yet mediocrity and failure are indeed part of the journey. But I like in your new book, how you're really putting some rigor around these concepts. And so can you tell us a little bit about your new book and who it's written for? So, you know, here, this is something a little bit flippant, but it's written for everybody. Um, now, I know that's the wrong answer, but 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 I, I kind of believe it because I, I wrote the book because, <clears throat> to my surprise, people are still confused about failure. They're either in the, oh, yeah, I hear this good stuff about failure, fail fast, fail often, failure parties camp, or they're in the, come on, I live in the real world. Like where I work, failure is not acceptable. Right. And the truth is they're both right, but they're both incomplete. My research suggests three archetypes, three types of failure. And only one of the three is the good kind. One is intelligent failure. And an intelligent failure pro produces new knowledge that truly could not have been gained any other way but through the failure. So it is a it is an undesired result of a thoughtful experiment. That's, a, that's an intelligent failure. We must learn to love those. We must learn to celebrate those because that's where innovation comes from. That's where skill development comes from. Right? That's where progress in any team or life comes from. Meanwhile, there are basic failures. Those are failures in familiar territory that are caused by usually by human error. And those we can, in fact, should work hard to reduce to near zero, right? It is okay to want to drive the basic failures out of your organization. And the way you do that is you get people to feel absolutely psychologically safe to speak up when they're not sure about something or to speak up when they see a small deviation that might end up spiraling out of control into a larger failure. So psychological safety plays a crucial role in the prevention of basic failures. The third kind, which are a little trickier, are the complex failures. They are failures that are multi-causal. They, they have a handful of factors that contribute to the undesired outcome. 
any one of which on its own would have not caused a failure. But the, but the, the way they came together, which is generally coming together in a somewhat new way, will lead to the failure. That sounds kind of hopeless, but it really isn't. Because in fact, the, the, the reality of many factors means that any one of them could have been caught and corrected and helped avert the failure. It's a, more often than not, the complex failures, the Columbia shuttle failure at NASA, the Boeing failure of the 737 MAXs were in fact preventable, but they required people to have been willing uh, to speak up in a timely way at various points in the process. Well, thank you for bringing that full circle back to psychological safety, and that makes sense. And I really like the distinction in your book that you make between mistakes and failures. I think so often when we think about topics, to your earlier point, we think about these big astronomical failures, but we're not thinking about like the micro mistakes along the way. So can you talk about those distinctions and why they're important? A mistake is a deviation from a known practice or protocol. Something cannot be a mistake in new territory because in new territory, by definition, we don't yet have the knowledge that we might need to get the results that we want. Why I talk about mistakes and failures as two different things are that failure is a larger category. Failure is any undesired result. Some failures are caused by mistakes, but other failures are not. They are merely the undesired result of a thoughtful experiment. And, and so when people say, you know, we tried something new and it didn't work and it was a mistake and that's okay, it's just technically wrong. Right? It's, it's, it, you know, it's <laughs> yes. not quite right. It wasn't a mistake. Give yourself a break. It wasn't a mistake. It was a non-knowable in advance problem, you know, failure. It was something you didn't want and we applaud that you didn't want it, but don't call it a mistake. So forgive me, but this sounds a lot like that old Rumsfeldian quote where Don Rumsfeld is like, oh, there are the no unknowns. Knowns. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you That's tell true. us the quote and right. you tell me what, what you think about that quote. Well, yeah, no, so I think he said there are, there are, there are, well, there are known knowns, but there are known unknowns. These are the things we know we do not know, and we're working hard to uh, close that gap. And then there are unknown unknowns, right? The things that it hasn't even occurred to us to wonder about or to learn more about. And sometimes, you know, not all that often, but sometimes you get you get caught up by the unknown unknowns, right? Something come, but you know, in my research, those are rare, right? People in organizations like to pretend that the cause of that massive failure was an unknown unknown because that lets them off the hook. Nobody could have known in advance. But more often than not, the bosses didn't know in advance, but somebody in the organization knew in advance. So that means that that unknown was in fact knowable had they created an environment where people felt it was safe to speak up. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the impact of taking risks and failure with individuals who are part of historically marginalized communities. And your point around an organization often knows and doesn't admit or knows and doesn't like grapple with some of the issues, but someone in the organization may know ties into this, I think, challenge around voice and around agency. If you see a failure coming and you're part of a community that has been historically punished for raising your voice, that puts an 
I think, an extraordinary burden on you as to whether you say something or you don't. What are your thoughts on that? What do you write about that in the book? Well, the, the um, I do write toward the end, I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, but I write about the unequal license to fail. And, and, and clearly, there's also an unequal license to speak up easily and naturally and know your voice will be welcome in most organizations. That is a challenge that I think every organization must work hard to address, right? We want, we, in, in, you know, in a way, I mean, this will sound playful, but I think it, we want organizations where everybody has an equal license to fail, right? Not just, not just people in the majority group. Um, and the reason why that isn't the case in most organizations today is that people who are un, whose identity group is underrepresented worry, and they worry rightly because they understand, I think, the psychological process of stereotyping, that they worry that their failure or their unwelcome voice will be quickly generalized or attributed to their identity group rather than to them as an individual. They're not individuals in the minds of, you know, of others in some ways. They're, they're, they're representatives. And, and so, or the, the even um, worse way this is put sometimes is that they're tokens. If you're a token, you, you, will feel it keenly and and say, it's not safe for me to speak up, or it's not safe for me to take a risk that might end badly, whereas other people have a license to take those risks. Yeah. I also think about the global context of failure. You know, we talk about failure and welcoming it more in our organization in an organized way, right, in a structured way. And that could be true or false within the Western cultures. But when we take a Western view on this, we lock out the rest of the globe, right? So can you talk to me about the global perspective on failure? Well, so the way I think about that is that, yes, it's true that talk about unequal license to fail. There's unequal cultural playing fields for for failure. But the need for it is no less acute. If you're in an organization in, say, Asia or you know, somewhere in, where you believe that the, the sort of attitudes towards failure um, are much more negative than in the West, the easy thing is, and natural thing is, to just like, okay, we just won't do that experimenting stuff. Well, that has an obvious problem, right? Which is then you won't be innovating. And if you aren't innovating, you are at risk, not today, but at some time in the future of no longer being able to compete. So even if what I'm asking, what I'm writing about and describing may be harder in some cultures than others, A, that doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means it's a little harder, but it's just as worthwhile. And I think that's the key. So the motivation needs to be higher and, and, and more present, and perhaps the work will be harder to do but it can and still must be done. And there's plenty of evidence to show that when you rise to the challenge, no matter what the culture, you can change people's behavior in in a positive way. Well, throughout your book, I mean, you're such a good storyteller and you tell stories of companies and organizations and incidents that where people fail well and people don't fail well. Can you talk about a good example of failure that highlights some of your theses in the book? A good sort of a good example of failing well. Well, it, it's uh, my open chapter two, which is sort of the intelligent failure chapter, with a quintessential setting for intelligent failure. 
And, and that is a scientific laboratory, more specifically the, the, the chemistry laboratory of Jennifer Heemstra, a professor at Emory University. And, you know, it almost, it, I know it's cheating a little bit to take us straight to a scientific laboratory where, of course, they fail well. Right? Yeah, That's, yeah. I mean, they're based you, on the scientific method. Right, so, right, right. yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but it's okay. So let's start at that extreme case where they know that day in and day out, they're trying to do things that haven't been done before. They're running experiments that you can't just look up in the literature to find out what happened because it's new territory. And yet, let's say, you know, a particular scientist in this laboratory has a hypothesis for a particular way to separate RNA, the double helix, and separate it into single strands. And, you know, he's all geared up. He's got his idea. It makes good sense based on the existing literature. And he tries it. And lo and behold, it fails, right? Is he disappointed? Of course he is, but not devastated because he he's a scientist. He understands this is part of the game he signed up for, but he's still disappointed, right? So I think it's important for our listeners to know that even in the realms where this is their bread and butter, they still don't find it fun to fail. Nobody does. So, but it they, they find it useful. I mean, not, you know, not fun, but you get the information that you needed. Oh, that didn't work. I wonder why it didn't work. And then you think about it anew and you say, what will I try next? So that's one setting. Another setting, again, a rather obvious one is IDEO, arguably the world's most celebrated innovation consultancy. And I, I had the privilege of studying a pretty good sized project for a, a corporate customer that failed, right? It didn't get, not only did they have like little failures behind closed doors, which of course is part and parcel of innovation, but when they delivered the end result to the client, um, the client didn't, they didn't dislike it, they liked it, but they didn't do anything with it, right? It, it just, it stopped, it, it stopped dead in its tracks. And that was very disappointing to the IDO team. And so they had to sort of say, okay, what happened and why? Like what was, what accounts for the gap between what we had hoped, which was to see this new idea on every shelf in every store in every world, uh, every country, but instead it didn't. And they had to then diagnose the shortcoming and figure out what to do differently next time. And that's life, right? That's, you know, so all of us, you know, I, I give the example of a of, of my mother's um, kind of a blind date that didn't work out very well, or Amy Webb has a beautiful story in there about a, a blind date that she went on uh, that um, was a disaster. And those are well-intentioned forays into new territory, but by definition, they won't all pan out. And so that's, but, but you learn what you can from them and you get back in there and you try again. Well, I do want to talk about an example of a catastrophic failure that could have been prevented that you brought up, which is the space shuttle Challenger explosion. And that's- Well, Columbia and Challenger, both. Both. They're very different, but they're very similar. Yes, yes. And so one of the things that I learned from the Challenger explosion was moving forward, the concept of the pre-mortem, which is something that I have taught for years in the world of leadership and the world of work. But I want to talk about the space shuttle programs in general and those catastrophic failures, because they point to that point that you are trying to make around failure upon failure, mistake upon mistake, kind of adding up until something catastrophic happens. So can you talk about the Columbia in particular and what we can learn from that and what we can take back into our work lives? Yes, you know, I think both Challenger and Columbia, you know, the two, the only two shuttle catastrophic failures in the, in the history of the program, 
they both had in common that probably the first instinct of of the senior executives after the fact was to see it as an unknown unknown but but that was not right right in 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 both cases there were you know not just like you know people with no expertise worrying but people with very real very relevant expertise worrying the, about particular problems and and you know some some sort of deviations from what they would have hoped would be present and yet they were either felt unable to speak up or spoke up but were not listened to and and then that allowed in a sense allowed the complex failures to sneak through and so best practice is we are proactively you know we're problem hunters we're proactively seeking input what are we missing and i love the premortem right? because the premortem you know the premortem is a mere is merely a thought experiment it says okay we're pretty excited about this launch this new product this this shuttle we think we're good to go but just for fun like pause everybody and turns out someone just gave me a crystal ball and in that crystal ball i have a reliable 100% reliable glimpse of the future and the crystal ball has just told me that tomorrow or 3 months from now whatever the proper time frame is we this project this launch was a catastrophic failure like oh that's terrible and so the question is what explains it and what you've done psychologically with this premortem is two things one you've converted a genuine situation of uncertainty into one hypothetically of certainty. You said, no, 100%. Like this is now a certain certain future. So that makes people think differently. The other thing you've done is you've reframed negativity as an act of analytic prowess or creativity. You know, you've said, what explains it? And now suddenly, rather than being reluctant to speak up because I don't want to look negative or stupid, I'm eager to speak up because I want to show you how smart I am. I want to show you how how much I can think of. Let's not overstate the eagerness because when I teach this and when I go around talking about it, so many people still feel that they don't have the freedom or even the language or even the historic capability. Like it's not built within them to be negative. And so many people tell me I struggle with this because I'm an optimist. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think um, I worked for Buckminster Fuller a thousand years ago, and he used to say, uh, he says, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I think both of those are very unbalanced states. He says, I'm a realist. I'm a data fiend, right? And and so I think part part of what you want to do with that premortem is get out ahead of that reaction and say, this is an exercise, and this is an opportunity to show what you can come up with, right? And in fact, the winners are, may, in fact, you know, the winners in this game or the participants in this game are those who can come up with the negative. Right? So you're, you're, you're basically framing high performance on this task as the ability to generate the negative. And then most of us are competitive enough to want to want to play that game. Well, you know, you also have to be courageous and humble as well to be able to put 
the situation aside and say, I'm going to play and I'm going to try to predict failure here, right? But one of the things you write about in your book is courageousness and humility in the act of dealing with and thinking about failure. So can you talk about those characteristics and others that may be important and how they relate to this world of failure? Yes. I, you know, the, in, in the book, I describe the three kinds of failure and, you know, and, and, and fundamentally, I just want to add that failing well in my mind is having more intelligent failures in your life or in your project and just as important preventing basic failures and complex failures right so that's what i'm talking about that's what we want to do and then i start to get into well what is, what are some of the things we need to do that and one of them is indeed humility but it's 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 the humility to remind yourself just constantly that you don't have that crystal ball like that is as capable as you are, as smart as you are, you truly don't have the ability to see the future. And so that makes you curious. And then the question, the first question becomes, what am I missing? Like, you know, what other perspectives might there be? So developing the habit of curiosity, right? The, the habit of shifting from the knowing stance to the learning stance from the, you know, I'm prone to vulnerable to the confirmation bias, which we all are, to the no, because I'm looking out there kind of going, what am I missing? I know I'm missing something. What is it? Selfishly, I want to know. So I really talk about that, that personal stance, that self-awareness to know that you don't have a crystal ball, so you better choose learning over knowing. And then the, really importantly, the, the situational awareness to know well, how dangerous is this situation really? You know, I run, am I sending a rocket with human beings in it into space? That's pretty dangerous. Or am I choosing whether to wear red or blue today? Who the hell cares, right? So, right, so it's like sometimes, I mean, but believe it, that sounds silly, right? But believe it or not, our brains don't do a great job of distinguishing the kind of riskier from less risky context, especially when we live in them, right? You know, when you're spending all your time running a shuttle program, you begin to just see a shuttle program as pretty routine stuff. And so you have to sort of pause and say, no, no, no. What really are the risks here? Financial, safety, and reputational. And then what really is the state of uncertainty here? And plan accordingly, behave accordingly. Well, you know, you've been out on the speaker circuit talking about this book for a little bit now, you know, and I'm, I know you've been asked so many questions, but I wonder if there's something you haven't been asked by people or an aspect of your book that you wish more people would talk about? Well, maybe it's this, uh, that this is, you know, people say, God, why did you write a book about failure? Actually, what I want people to understand is this is a book about success and in an uncertain world that is the one we live in, failure plays an absolutely vital role in success, right? And, 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 in, and again, in two very different ways. One, in being willing to take enough risks to make advances, both personally and, and professionally, and with your projects at work. And two is the ability to be cautious and vigilant and thoughtful um, in the high-risk situations so that you can prevent the, the preventable failures in your in your life. And that's how you succeed, right? You succeed when you don't have a, a bunch of utterly wasteful failures that could have been prevented. And when you have a healthy dose 
of smart experiments that don't all work out as hoped. Hmm. That's really lovely. I love the connection between success. And I have to say, I'm a big fan of the book. I have my copy right here. And I'm so grateful for your time today. As we wrap up the conversation, I know everybody can just Google you and find you, but is there any particular place you like people to connect with you? Should they go to LinkedIn? Should they go to their website? What do you prefer? You know, I think LinkedIn is is a is a great platform. It's certainly a great platform for sharing ideas and professional experiences. And so that's a that's a great place to find me. It's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. I follow you on LinkedIn. And one of the things that's really beautiful about your platform presence there is that you share other people's good ideas. Do you do that of intentionally? Course. Of course I do. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'll sometimes go just to, you know, to see what's happening and, and what can I learn today? And, um, and it is, if I see something that I learn from, well, why not share it? Well, wait, now I have to ask you the corollary to that. Do you see things on LinkedIn where you're like, oh my God, barf? Because most of us do. Um, I, I'd have to admit that is, uh, sometimes the case, Okay, good. but I don't usually respond on the barf. Meter. <laughs> I just move on. Right. I'd I think I'd rather it's the old, uh, if you can't say something nice, don't say it. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Amy, you're just like you and me, you know, having a social media experience out there that is really quirky. I mean, before we wrap up, I, I do want to talk about that because I see a lot of people experimenting on social media, right? Trying to develop a brand, trying to share ideas social media, a force for good and also a force for just chaos in this world. Um, what are your quick thoughts on that? I think my biggest worry about social media is, is, is two big worries. But one, the big, biggest one for me is it's a time sink. It is very easy to log in and, and just suddenly lose hours. And to me, that doesn't feel like productive time. Maybe that's old fashioned, but it's um, so that that's risky. And then I think, would I have been able to do what I've been able to do if social media had existed when I was young? And I worry very much that the answer is no. Now, maybe because I don't have enough willpower or something, but so much of the ideas and research that I've done really required kind of deep and enduring, you know, intense focus over time uh, and not getting distracted too often. So that's one one worry. And then, of course, the other worry is the the hair trigger element, the the fact that things can inadvertently come across in the wrong way and then maybe occasionally go viral in a way that's quite harmful uh, to people. And, and that's a worry too. That's you know part of the nature of the medium. Well, and you know, it's very difficult to plan for when things go wrong on social media. I mean, there are the obvious cases, right? But I mean, talk about some catastrophic corporate failures over the years through social media. You know, it's a double-edged sword, though, because you mentioned that you wouldn't have been able to focus maybe early on in your career had social media been around, but yet social media has amplified your really beautiful ideas and your beautiful message, and now your beautiful book. So isn't it funny how both can it be true? It is funny. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, as you as you say, and and the the temporal nature of it, you know, at least for me, was focus, develop, get, you know, get evidence, get confidence in these ideas, then share and my, still, I'd rather, I mean, I'd rather, for me, it's important to get, get it right. And so when I'm writing, you know, actually writing an article, writing a book, I'm really working hard at the language and that the social media is not a, a context that is conducive to that kind of precision and care. So I worry sometimes that we, we are at risk of sort of more casual, people just put claims out there like this is true. Well, 
what's the evidence, right? And then, and then, and then, and then people just say, oh yeah, it's true because it was said on social media. Right. Oh, such a challenge. Well, maybe for your next book, Amy, I'd love to see you dive deeper on that. <laughs> now that you need more work, not that you need more work from me, please. Well, listen, it was such a pleasure to see you again, and we will make sure everybody has access to your LinkedIn profile, all your good stuff. We'll put all of that in the show notes. And thanks again for being a guest. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. Show notes and more can be found on punkrockhr.com. This episode was expertly produced by Emerald City Productions, and we would all appreciate it if you left us a five-star review. So go to wherever you stream your podcasts like Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio and leave that five-star review and your thoughts on the episodes themselves. Now, that's all for today, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We will catch you next time on Punk Rock HR.